Amen. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, and we're going to read. Well, we might as well read, starting in verse 1, um, and then going all the way to verse 41. But the focus of our text is going to be where we left off a few weeks ago, verses 14 through 41. So Acts chapter 2, and, and if you have a pew Bible, that's page 909 of your pew Bible. Here's the, the word of the Lord spoken to you, his people. Give attention to this reading. He says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a, a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ears to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above. Signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Before the day of the Lord comes. The great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or yet let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God swore to him an oath that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ 
and that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with so many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received this word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Amen. You may be seated. I wonder, what would you expect a sermon on Pentecost to be about? You've heard many sermons in your day. Um, What would you expect a sermon on Pentecost to be about? What are are the first words that come to your mind when you you hear about the day of Pentecost? Well, I think that you would join me in expecting a sermon on Pentecost to be about the Holy Spirit. You would think that Peter would stand up before the people on that great day of Pentecost and tell them all about the Holy Spirit. And and in fact, that's what he starts to do, isn't it? When he refers to that prophecy in the book of Joel about the Spirit being poured out. And he says, guess what? That's what's happening right now. The Spirit has been poured out, not just on special people, special leaders in Israel, but upon all of the people. All believers without distinction. But notice that his sermon launches past that and and basically the entire sermon is spent talking about who? Not so much the Holy Spirit, but Jesus. This is a sermon on the day of Pentecost and, and what's the main theme of the sermon? Well, verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus is the content of this Pentecost sermon. And we hear that and we say, well, did Peter kind of miss the memo? Did, did he, is, he, is he bringing his Easter sermon to Pentecost? Is he bringing his Christmas sermon to Pentecost? No. Peter is right on. And in fact, what we're going to see is this is exactly what he should be preaching about. He's nailed it. He understands what is happening in Pentecost. I love how he starts off. Greatest hook of any sermon ever. Men of, men of Israel, we're not drunk. Okay, that's great. <laughs> I, love, I love how he starts that. We are not drunk. And then he launches in to talking about what is really happening. And it's all about Jesus. All about Jesus. This is, in fact, what we are to expect from the scriptures. Uh, John chapter 16. I'm going to turn there. John chapter 16. 
verse 14, says this. Here's Jesus himself saying, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. But he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. See what the ministry of the Holy Spirit is about? Drawing us to Jesus, putting a spotlight on Jesus. Why? Is it because he's lesser than Jesus? No, no. It's because his divine ministry is to put a spotlight on Jesus and to draw all who will come to salvation. Well, we're going to see this um, by unfolding this first sermon in the book of Acts. And by the way, one fourth of the book of Acts is is sermon delivery. So get used to this. This is just the first of 15 long sermons. And what we're going to see in this sermon is that Peter points us to Christ Peter calls us to action and Peter grounds us in God's promise. And all three of these are exactly what Pentecost is designed to do in your life. Points us to Christ. That ministry of the Holy Spirit. Well, you can't miss miss that in this sermon, can you? Um, There is a J shape, you could say, to the sermon. In fact, I invite you, um, kids and adults alike, to, if if you're the type to take notes, Put a big capital J there in your sermon notes to the, in, in, in the section you know where I'm at, right? A big capital J with a, with a big cross and then a, and, and then a, a hook. And you're going to see where I'm going with this. Because the, the J shape, of course, stands for Jesus. And it's actually d- the direction that this sermon moves. Down the hook and up to the top. And you're going to see that this sermon is all about Jesus. And yes, that's memorable, but you're, you're going to follow along. First of all, the J shape that the Holy Spirit, speaking through Peter, leads us, takes us along Christ's mission to, uh, starting with his life. His life. And what do we see in verse 22? Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know. See, Jesus really did live. That's what Christmas is all about. That that the Son of God became incarnate, took on human flesh, and dwelt among us. And what did he do? He went about, particularly through three years of focused ministry, doing wonders and signs that drew attention to him and the mighty works of God through him. And anyone who was in this crowd knew that this was a real living man that they themselves had witnessed. You see, we need to start here because I, we need this as well. Our churches need to be reminded of this basic fact that there, Jesus is not just some, I guess you could say, trumped up mythical figure who fills our imaginations with joy. He is a real and living, breathing man. And there's really no difference between the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith. They're not different things. They are one person. The Jesus of history is the Christ of our faith. Living, breathing, walking, doing miracles, attested by God. His life. And you can write life right there on the left side of your hook of the J. Right there where the the hook starts. 
But then what we also hear in this sermon is, is Peter recites the basic facts of his mission from his life, then to his death. What does he say in verse 23? This Jesus delivered up to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Yes, Jesus died and he died on a cross. Now right away, our Muslim and our Jewish friends have a problem. They don't like to hear this. I love them, but I have to proclaim this as loudly as I can. Why don't, why don't Jews and Muslims, what's the problem that, that our friends have with the death of Jesus on a cross? Well, for our Jewish friends, the death on a cross is this humiliating thing, which of course it is, that, that, that could never be said of the Messiah who comes triumphing um, for God and for his people, the Messiah who's, who ushers in the last day. And so our Jewish friends would say, no, 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 this cannot be the Messiah. Our Muslim friends say, there's no way this could be a Messiah or a prophet. Why? Because it's humiliating to die on a cross. And so what do they say? They say it was not Jesus that died on a cross, but another. That's the extent to which our friends go. But what does Peter say here in this sermon? This is, in fact, the very plan of God that the Messiah would die on a cross. Isaiah 53 gets at this very point. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. And though evil men conspired and evil men enacted their plans, it was ultimately God that drew Jesus to Jerusalem where he would die on a cross. Why? Because according to the plan of God, this was the only way to deal with the problem of sin. This was the only way to stoop so low to save mankind from its greatest problem. Its greatest problem is sin, rebellion against God. Jesus died the death that sinners deserve to die on the cross, taking death taking our sins, nailing it to the cross. But Jesus didn't stay there because you've got the life on the, on the left-hand side of the hook and then you have Jesus' death written right at the very bottom of the hook, the low point of his humiliation. But then, what do we hear? That Jesus rose again from the dead. Another basic gospel fact proclaimed by Peter in verse 24. The resurrection is what? That God raised Jesus from the dead. And you can write resurrection right there on the right-hand side of the hook, right underneath that line on the top of the J. Because that's what God did. He, he, uh, he started to exalt Christ by, by raising him from the dead on the third day. Peter says this in verse 24. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. I love that language. It was not possible for Jesus to be held in that tomb. It's like, you know, that tomb is like an incubator and it's about to just burst open. And that's exactly what happened. Peter points to the scriptures, says, you, you don't believe me? You don't believe the testimony that Jesus is walking and, and, and living and breathing? You don't believe the, the over 5,000 people that have seen him up to this point? Then look at the scriptures, Psalm 16. Who is that talking about? 
You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. Surely not David. David's tomb is in our city. Any of you been to Jerusalem? I've seen David's tomb. It's there. And everyone who goes there and glances at it assumes rightly that David is in there and he is decaying. And he will one day be raised. But this psalm isn't talking about him, is it? No. When he spoke these words, he was looking forward and speaking about another. And there's only one way to understand this. It had to be another holy one. All signs point to Jesus of Nazareth. The one who rose from the dead, who was publicly seen as, as raised. And so, verse 24, God raised him from the dead. But that's not where it stops. All of this is building to the top of the J where you can write on the very top line, Ascension. Because there the J-curve finds its completion where Jesus, who, who took upon flesh, who lived, who died, who rose from the dead, what did he do? After 40 days after his resurrection, he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. As we hear here in verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. See, the ascension tops it all off. Why? Because it's in the ascension of Jesus that the J-curve come to its, its completion and he is rightly acknowledged as who he is, Lord and Christ. Christ, because he saves his people from his sins, from their sins, and he's done everything necessary to rescue his people. But Lord, why? Because he is highly exalted King of the universe, the only one by whom mankind can come to God. And the only one, by the way, who can pour out the Holy Spirit. That's why the ascension is so important. It's because um, the ascension, that top line on the J-curve, is that moment in which Jesus is crowned Lord of all. He's crowned Lord of all. And Pentecost... Uh, puts its point on that and underscores it because it's like the great coronation service for King Jesus. I haven't lived long enough to see a, um, uh, a monarch crowned. And I don't like to talk much about monarchs as, as, a, as a good American boy, but Jesus is king. And so I need to talk about monarchs. And, and let me just venture over to, um, uh, to that little island across the sea that that our, many of our families came from for just a moment. And if you were to have lived long enough to see Queen uh, Elizabeth, um, who, has, who has since passed to glory, um, if, if you would have seen her um, become queen, you would know that there was a moment in which she became queen of England. She ascended to the throne, as it were. It was her rightful place of authority. But then there was a later date at which Everyone in England came and saw her crowned and gifts spilled into the streets and, and, and children received gifts from the queen. You know, chocolates and candies and mugs with the queen's face on it, whatever it was, you know, it spilled out from the queen's palace. Well, on a much greater scale, that is what is happening along the J-curve. Jesus has done everything that it takes to be, to be recognized as king of the universe, rightfully as he is. And then when he rises from the dead, he ascends to the throne 
crowned Lord of all, but it's at Pentecost that he is publicly declared king. It is Pentecost where from Jesus' hands pour out gifts, the greatest gift of all, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Pentecost is God's public announcement that Christ is crowned Lord of all. I love it. Verse 36. Let me just tag this text right here as, the, as key to the sermon. 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord in Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Let me just, let me just ask this. Are we certain, are you certain that this Jesus is Christ and Lord? It's a good application question from this text, isn't it? Are you certain that this Christ is Lord? This Jesus of Nazareth? If you aren't aren't certain, then let this sermon be the very moment that you become certain, (laughs) that you take time to settle this in your heart. Because it's urgent, it's important. He's King, He's Lord, He's Christ. It's at this moment that we hear, we see the Spirit through Peter pointing us to Christ that we also hear this great call of action. And it starts with the people's cry, what shall we do? This is the response to Peter's message. It's a response that every pastor loves. What shall we do? I'd love it if uh, one time someone would just interrupt me. Hey, pastor, tell me, what do I do with this? This is, this is so much on my heart. Just tell me, what do I do? Say, okay, I'm getting to there. You know? but, but that's exactly what happens when these people who are listening hear this message. Uh, their hearts sink. Do you feel it? They're hearing Peter preach, and they're seeing Jesus exalted in his words. And they're seeing visible signs that the coronation of Jesus as king has occurred. The king of the universe is sitting on his throne and they have his blood on their hands. One month earlier, this was the same crowd that was in Jerusalem for Passover and they're crying out, crucify, crucify, away with him. And now Peter's telling them, you killed him, you crucified him. But that wasn't the end of the story. And now he's king of the universe. And now he's the only way to be right with God. And they realize we are in serious trouble. Do you know, have you ever been in a moment like that where you're caught red-handed and you're not just ashamed that you've been caught, but you actually feel guilty? I I don't know how to make this right. I don't know what to do. You ever felt that? Where you you, you say, maybe it's your parent. You 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 got in trouble with your parent and you said, mom, I, I, I know I'm in trouble. What do I do? What do I do to make this right? Help me. That's exactly where these Jews find themselves. Peter says, you you killed him. You crucified them. They say, what do we do? Friends, as we hear this sermon, as we hear about Pentecost and Jesus, our hearts should sink too. Our hearts should sink too. Why? Because when Peter speaks of a crooked generation... In his time, we should realize that our generation is no less crooked than his. We don't have to look around much to see that, do we? Crooked leaders, crooked people, crooked thoughts, evil intentions. And we can bury it, we can dress it up, we can make it look good. But we live amongst a crooked people and we ourselves 
have blood on our hands. Why did Jesus have to go to the cross? It was our sin that put him there. And you don't have to look too far to see this. What do we do? What do we want to do when Jesus the Lord tells us how to live? When we hear a directive from his word. What do we do when Jesus starts to put his finger on our idols? Start to say, hey, I don't want that. I don't, I, don't want, I don't want that, Jesus. I want another one. Why don't you step out of the way? And I venture to say that there are times in which if Jesus was standing right in front of us today, looking us in the eyes, and he was barring our way from the idols that we love most, we'd do whatever it would take to get him out of the way. That's us in our, in our flesh, you understand? That's us in our worldliness. Impeach him. Uh, push him out of the way. Crucify him if necessary. Maybe you're thinking, Pastor, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that. Are you sure? What's the thing you, loved, you love most in life? And when Jesus comes and he claims lordship over that, you start to start to sweat, start to feel uncomfortable. You should start to see that we are way more like this crowd than we'd like to admit. We don't like when Jesus tells us to give up our loss. We don't like when Jesus tells us to give up our anger. We don't like when Jesus tells us how to order our family. We don't like when Jesus orders our priorities. We don't like... When Jesus tells us who and who we can't be, who, who we can and can't be in a relationship with. It makes us uncomfortable because we like to be the Lord of our own lives. We like a Jesus that we can, con- we can control. So when we hear Jesus, we hear Peter saying, you crucified him, you killed him. Sure, we weren't in Jerusalem. Sure, we, we didn't. We didn't put him on a cross, but our sin did. The rebellion of our own lives, our selfish priorities put him there. You have to be able to say that if if you want to get close to Jesus. You have to be able to say that if you want to say the next thing. What do we do? What do I do? Peter is very happy to hear that question. He has a solution. Repent and be baptized. And in doing so, you save yourself from a crooked generation. Let's look at each of these very quickly. First of all, Peter calls us to repent. What does it mean to repent? You know, usually you hear that word and it's coming. um, Usually picture it from a fire and brimstone preacher. Repent. But it's a good word. It's a biblical word. And, and I think when we understand what it means, uh, we, we can actually dignify it. What it means, first of all, is to pull out from the crowd. Pull out from the crowd. What does it mean to pull out from a crowd? Well, from day one, as, as sinners, as day one, being born as rebels against God in Adam, uh, what we learn very early on is to start doing what everyone else is doing including sinning. And we start learning from everyone else how we order our lives apart from Jesus. We start 
What's one of the first excuses we come up with when we want to do something that we know isn't right? Everyone's doing it. You know, that's what kids come home and say to their parents. Well, mom and dad, they're doing it. Why can't I? And Jesus calls us to do the most difficult thing possible, to pull out from that crowd. Now, that's like walking backwards up an escalator when people are coming down, right? You feel the pressure of society. And those of you who have ever gone to to college and especially to a secular college know what this is like. You feel the pressure to conform. You feel the pressure to jump in line and just, just to go with the flow. But repenting means you pull out from the crowd, which means you say, I'm not going to live that way anymore. And it doesn't matter if everyone else is doing it. I'm going to be different. You start, start walking backwards up that escalator as you feel body after body hit you going down. Walking up the escalator towards the ascended Savior. The second thing that repentance means is you turn away from your sins. You don't just pull yourself backward up the escalator, you start walking in newness of life. That's what's involved in this. It's, it's, it's like you're driving a car down the highway and suddenly you see you're going the wrong way and there's a hundred cars coming at you and you're about to get slammed. And so you, you, you slam on the brakes and you start veering your car in a, in a massive U-turn in the other direction. That's what repentance means. And there's, there's that instant in which you devote yourself to that But all of us know it's a lifelong process, right? Of turning away from the things that are pulling us away from Jesus. That's what repentance means. Start walking in newness of life. Pull out from the crowd, turn, and also be baptized. What does it mean to be baptized? You know, we see see baptism up here. Um, pouring water on someone, or you, you, perhaps you come from a tradition where someone is immersed in water. Baptism is this application of water to the body. And we know that it's a symbol. A symbol of what? A symbol of being identified with Jesus. A symbol of cleansing for a crooked generation. See, baptism says this to the world. My Heart needs cleansed. The hearts of the people in my household need cleansed. I am not well, naturally. I've got a problem. And that problem is a stubborn heart that resists what Jesus calls me to do. I'm more complicit in a crooked generation than I care to admit. I need King Jesus to cleanse me. That's what baptism says. So that... If you come forward and are baptized in this church, that's what is is symbolically declared to the world. That this person is identified with the cleansing that comes in Jesus. And then when we bring our children forward to be, be baptized, as we do in this tradition, we're not saying they're automatically forgiven, but we're saying that they need that cleansing. And guess what? The promise of cleansing is not only for us, but for them and for all who are far off. They need that promise. They need to be identified with that promise. You have to come to the point where you say, I need that cleansing and my kids need that if you are to be baptized. Turn, be identified with Jesus. Let me just ask you this. Have you repented? Have you repented? Have you ever come to the point where you said, you know, 
I've said a lot of nice things about Jesus in my life. I like a lot of things about him. But when push comes to shove, I have not come to the point where he can touch whatever it is in my life. And though it stings, though it hurts, I give it to him. Have you come to the point where you say, you know, I've got my priorities. But Jesus, you can smash them. You can smash them to bits if you want. Have you come to the point where you've said that and you've allowed the word to smash what you believe so that Jesus can restructure it? Let me ask you another question. Christians, those of you who have done this in your life, are you continuing to do it day after day? What is, identify one area in your life today that you don't want Jesus to touch. Where is it? What is it? Something that you're hiding from the world, something that you, you want to have in the privacy of your home, something that you want to keep in your heart. It's time to let Jesus claim it. It's time to let him, the Lord and Christ, to smash it, give it to him. Turn and walk in newness of life. Let me ask another question. Have you been baptized? Have you been baptized? If you have never, if you've not yet come to be baptized, are you hearing the words of Peter here? Are you, are you ready to come to the point where you say, I need that cleansing. I recognize that that promise is for me. And I recognize that my children, my whole family needs that. Have you come to that point? Friends, the text leaves us at a very good place because it not only points us to Christ, it not only calls us to specific action, repentance and baptism, but it grounds us in God's firm promise that Pentecost is still good news today that repentance and baptism are still offered freely to all who will come to Christ. Good news for all people. And we see that here in verse 39. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. You see, friends, Jesus never takes away without giving something better. He never smashes our priorities without restructuring them with better ones. He never rips out of our hands our sins without giving us a better gift. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus will supply you even more fully than what he takes away from your hands? Well, Pentecost is all about that. Pentecost is about Jesus tearing out of your hands the steering wheel of your life. And he says, jump in the back seat because I'm taking you in a better direction. And Jesus gives us forgiveness. He gives us the Holy Spirit. He gives us a beautiful promise. That promise is for you. Do you hear that this morning? That's what we hear in the word. The promise is for you. It's for your children. It's for all who are far off. All who the Lord God calls to himself. And on that day of Pentecost, three thousand souls were saved. Do you remember what Pentecost is all about? It's a festival of a harvest. Well, the harvest in Acts, in the book of Acts, has begun, and it continues this day. 3,000 souls saved then. 3,000 souls added to the number. 3,000 
New converts baptized. Would you join that number today? Would you join that number if you haven't already? And if you have, will you renew your commitment to Christ's lordship? Will you renew your commitment today to walk in newness of life? Will you hear his call to action? Will you rest in his promise? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for every good gift that comes from you, the gift of the Holy Spirit, the gift of baptism, and what it signifies. We ask, Lord, that you would renew in us a zeal for your word. And may we not hear Peter's sermon and walk away unchanged, but may we be fully changed, embracing the Lord as Christ, humbling ourselves before him, coming to him, pleading for the cleansing that only he can bring from this crooked generation of which we are much more apart than we care to admit. We ask all of this in Christ's name, amen. We come to the time of the Lord's Supper, and I do invite our elders to come forward.